Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, exactly, where we thought we might cover it last week, but we did not, and we did not do so on purpose. Oh, you laugh. Uh, Before we pray and get started in our Bible study, a quick announcement. Next Tuesday, the women's ministry is kicking back up for their next semester on Living Deliciously. Tuesday mornings at 9.30 in the morning, Tuesday evenings at 6.30. We welcome you gals out. Let's pray. Father, when we consider that your Son was sent into the world on a mission and declared, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. It becomes then the great question of our lives, to what will you send us? To whom? When will that be and how? Will that task be completed? Those are questions really, Lord, that only you can answer individually in the lives and hearts of your people. And we pray that tonight's study would be in part the answer to that. Lord, all of us in this room, no matter what we do, have been called by you for a purpose. And even if we're on the staff of this church, this is not a job. This is a divine call. Help us to understand with great clarity, according to the gifts you have provided for us and the need that we will see in our world, all those answers to those questions, when, where, how, In Jesus' name, amen. I said that we left off in Matthew 9 on purpose, strategically, and we really did. It it, it is exactly where we want to be. Part of life is growth. You expect growth. It's normal. It's natural. Everything that is in the physical world that is a living organism has some kind of a growth pattern. You expect a baby to grow into a toddler, a toddler to become an adolescent, an adolescent to one day get out of the house when they become an adult. You really don't want them to stay. Now, I know moms get a little bit sentimental and say, Oh, I don't want you to grow up. This is such a beautiful age. But if they were to stay at that age for 10 or 20 years, you would have a change of heart. Growth is normal. You expect it. In fact, when there's a lack of growth, when there's some physical retardation or mental capacity that is diminished, you get worried, and rightfully so. Well, what is true in the physical realm 
the physiological realm, is also true in the spiritual realm. Jesus talked about a relationship with Him in terms of being born. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. But once you have been born, you expect growth, spiritual growth, growth to become mature. And one of the evidences that you are a mature Christian is that you take seriously the calling to go into all the world, to be sent, as we're going to read about tonight. The disciples in the section we are about to enter into are facing a very unique opportunity. They have been disciples. They are about to become apostles, sent ones. That's what it means. Up to this point, as disciples, mathetes is the Greek word, it means a learner, somebody who learns, they were watching Jesus, they were hearing Jesus, they were processing all of the information. But there came a point in their spiritual journey, their growth, when it was time to not just be a learner, but to be a sent one, not just a disciple, but now an apostle, a mathetes, a a, Uh, and then a learner, then an apostle, a sent out one. And we'll see that in in this section. The last part of uh, Matthew chapter 9 is a hinge point. Look at it as a hinge that upon which swings a great door of Jesus' ministry. Up to this point, Jesus has been doing all of the ministry. And as I said, the disciples have been watching them. Here now is the hinge. From Jesus being with the crowds to Jesus now being with His disciples for the crowds. Jesus has done all the teaching. He's done all the healing. He's done all the preaching. The the disciples have been watching. Now they will take part in it. Jesus will spend time with them, and in spending time with them, prepare them for the ministry of teaching and preaching and healing. So they're faced with an enormous opportunity. Will I just sit on the bench and continue to learn, or will I be sent? Now, we never stop learning. We're always disciples till the day we die. There's always things to process and to hear and to watch. But the real excitement, the real adventure comes in being sent. In this section of John 9, Jesus will survey the crowd and see their condition. And it's a pretty pitiful condition. In seeing the condition, He will then formulate a plan to meet the condition, to heal the condition, to fix the condition. And that's where the apostles come in. In verse 32... We finished in verse 31. As they went out, behold, they brought to him, Jesus, a man mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes, notice the word multitudes, the crowds are gathering. The multitudes marveled, saying, it was never seen like this in Israel. This crowd, these multitudes, knew 
had heard in the synagogues all of the messianic prophecies like Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah 45, and others that spoke about the son of David and and the ministry in the kingdom age, the healings, uh, the blind opening their eyes, the, the deaf having their ears unstopped, the lame being able to walk. They had heard all of that. And now they see Jesus and they hear Jesus and they say, man, it's never been like this. It was prophesied like this, but it was never seen like this in all of Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. What a contrast. You have the multitudes attributing the miracles to God. This is proof that he's the Messiah. This is the one sent by God. The prophet spoke about. It's never been seen like this in Israel. This man must be the Messiah. These miracles are from God. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are attributing the miracles to Satan. Interesting contrast. Interesting way to process the same exact sermons and the same exact miracles. Now, there was no denying that Jesus was a miracle worker. But the Pharisees felt that though he was working miracles, the source of those miracles must be by the devil. Verse 35 is a summation. Then Jesus went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Now we have, in that verse, a summation of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Summing it all up, this is what he did. He preached, he taught, and he healed. Now we're going to see a change. Before we do, we have a question that's been texted in that asks, why did demon possession seem more obvious and flagrant back then? Well, I'm glad you asked the question that way. Why did it seem more obvious? I don't know that it is. It just seemed that way. Um, There's no proof that demon possession is still not seen in the same way today. In fact, many places around the world... Not in Western civilization, but in places that I've been to, places like India, places in remote parts of Asia, demon possession is more obvious and flagrant like it was in the New Testament. These are cultures like in ancient Israel that were more in touch with the spiritual realm. We live in a Western culture that denies the supernatural. So uh, when something manifests itself like this, it's usually relegated to mental disorder, mental disease, and medication is given, etc. Not always favorably so. So when it comes to our culture, um, Satan is not an idiot, and we shouldn't be ignorant of his devices. What works over here to deceive people may not be what worked in ancient Israel or in these other more primitive cultures. But he's got his ways that are very effective, uh, besides obvious and flagrant demon possession. Now look at verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, 
Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus saw the crowds. But when he looked over the crowds, he didn't go, oh man, I hate crowds. Where'd all these people come from? What a bother. No, that's what we say. Jesus saw them differently. He could look beyond the outward, beyond just the fact that there were many people out there. He could see their inner condition. And we notice that Jesus was moved with compassion. Stop right there. Moved with compassion is a very interesting Greek word. The word is splanknizomai. Say that quickly ten times. Splanknizomai comes from the word splankna, which means the gut, the intestine, the bowels. And that is because the ancient Hebrews believed that the deepest emotion of a person was felt in the gut, the pit of one's stomach. If you've ever had to speak in front of people and you're not used to it, you dread being in front of people, but they they call upon you for something, you've got to come up and say a few words, and you go, oh no, when you get up there, you often get what we call butterflies. You feel it. And where do you feel it? Do you feel it in your fingers? you feel it in your head? No, you feel it in the pit of your stomach. I hate that feeling. If a catastrophe happens... Somebody tells you about a sudden death of a loved one. You feel it in the pit of your stomach. So the ancient Hebrews believed that when a person feels the deepest, the deepest part of them emotionally, is the pit of the stomach, the intestines, because of that feeling that is generated during those intense times. Now in our Western culture, our modern culture, we use a different figure of speech. We say, It's from the heart. It's all about the deepest part of me, deep, deep, deep in my heart. The ancient Hebrews, this was the heart. It was a place where you think. It's where you process your thoughts. This is the biblical heart. It's as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Whereas the deepest emotion that you feel is in the splankna, so splanknizomai. Jesus was moved in the gut toward them. It's a beautiful word, and it it reveals to us the kind of Savior we have. Here's Jesus feeling toward people, having an emotion toward people, emotionally moved toward the need of others. And this isn't the only time. When our Lord goes to the funeral of his friend Lazarus and he sees the crowd weeping, and especially Mary and Martha, their hearts are broken and they're weeping over the death of their brother, the scripture tells us Jesus was moved in the spirit and troubled in spirit. Same word, splankna, splanknizomai. He was moved emotionally. He felt deeply for those that he loved. Or how about this? When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and they came to arrest him, Jesus said, If you're here to arrest me, then let these, my disciples, go. Why did he say that? Because he cared about them. He felt deeply toward them. Wanted to get them out of the fray of this arrest that was for the glory of God that he was to undergo. When Jesus 
a few days before that, was coming into Jerusalem and he saw the city of Jerusalem over him. Now, if you go to Israel today, and we'll be there in a few months, some of us, and you stand on the Mount of Olives, the first time you crest the Mount of Olives and you look over Jerusalem, you go, wow, this is, there's a big smile on your face. I've, I've heard about this. I've seen pictures of this. This is awesome. Well, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't pull out his camera and go, got to get a shot. Disciples, move over this way. Get the temple behind you. This is awesome. The Bible tells us Jesus wept. And he cried out and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you together. Your children together as a hen would gather her chicks, but you were not willing. And he foresaw the coming of the Roman army against them and the destruction of the temple. Feeling deeply, he wept over them. Like at Lazarus' funeral, Jesus wept with them. On the cross, a torture that you think would be so self-consuming. When you die a painful death, you're usually only thinking about one thing, the painful death. Jesus was thinking about others. He prayed, Father, forgive them. And then the second statement on the cross Today you'll be with me in paradise to the repentant robber. And then before he died, he made sure that his mother was taken care of by John the Apostle, thinking of others, feeling deeply for others. So that's the picture that should be in your mind tonight as you read. And Jesus was moved with compassion for them. Why? Because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. The New American Standard Bible, if you have one, translates this verse a little bit differently. They were distressed and they were downcast. That's the words the New American Standard Bible uses. What Jesus saw was the inward condition. Lives devastated by sin. When we look at people, we see people. And we go, nice hairdo. Ugly sweater. He's gained a little weight lately. He's lost a little hair lately. She doesn't look the same. We we see the outward. Jesus looks at people differently and is able to see beyond the surface into the very condition of the soul. And he sees them as distressed, downcast, or weary and scattered. Why? Because they were like sheep having no shepherd. Interesting that the Pharisees and the scribes, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, they were to be, they should have been, the shepherds of the flock of Israel, the people of Israel. They were false shepherds. They didn't bind up their wounds. They didn't make sure that they were fed. And one of the heart cries of God is to raise up shepherds that will feed his flock. Ezekiel chapter 34. Woe to the false shepherds who feed themselves and not my flock. And God promises that his heart, because he loves his flock, he wants to raise up shepherds who will feed them the knowledge of God. So Jesus sees this flock that should have been tended was not. And he said to his disciples, The harvest speaking of the crowd, is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. The New Testament in basic English, a more modern translation, renders this verse, 
There is much grain, but few men to get it in or gather it in. There is much grain, but few men to get it in. Here Jesus changes metaphors. He's been seeing them like a flock, but he speaks of them like a harvest. Now what was he speaking of? Well, when you look out over grain fields and you have these individual stocks of grain, if they just stay there, they're going to die where they're at and you're going to lose the grain. You have to come in and cut them down, harvest them and store them, gather them in. So Jesus sees the flock of the Jewish people, Israel, like stocks of standing grain that need to be brought in to the barn, if you will, of God's kingdom. If they're left there, they're just going to die. So he says, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, what was true then happens to be true now. The need outweighs the people to meet the need. There's always more harvest, more grain, more work to be done in the field than workers who are willing to go out and do anything about it. Thus the concern of Jesus. And he wants his disciples now who have been watching, who have been listening, who have been processing to get involved. And first he says, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Okay, so we have no record that they prayed, but I I bet they did. I bet he told them to do it, and I bet that they did that. I'm just inferring based upon what I know about Jesus and them that he said, boys... Look at this crowd. Look at all the need out there. Look at their inward condition. There's a lot of people, but there's no workers to tend to their needs. Let's talk to God, the Lord of the harvest, the one in charge, the sovereign king, and let's ask him to do something about it. So, I'm guessing that Peter might have said, boys, let's do what he said. Maybe they bowed their heads. Maybe they lifted their eyes and raised their hands, and they said, Lord... Just like our master has taught us to do, we pray that you would send out laborers into the harvest field. Interesting that Jesus didn't say, pray that we get more supervisors. All he needs is a laborer. Anybody who will say, here I am, Lord, send me. That's the ones Jesus is looking for, just somebody to do the work. Okay, so keep that thought in mind. Now we get to chapter 10. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. All right. In the New Testament, we have four different lists of these disciples. One in Matthew, one in Mark, one in Luke, and one in the book of Acts. It seems, if you were to compare all four lists, that there were three groups of four men in the twelve. And these three groups were led by three leaders, Peter being one, Philip being another, James the son of Alphaeus being a third. Just by the way they're grouped, it would just seem that they came in threes. When you read the list, 
There's always certain things that remain the same. They're not exactly the same, but there are certain things in all four lists that are always the same. Number one, Peter is always mentioned first. Number two, James and John are always coupled, and James is always mentioned before John, probably because James was older than John. And in all three lists, all four lists, Judas Iscariot is always named last. And that's because he betrayed Jesus. That is made mention of because it is written after the fact. First on the list of these disciples, and again, I'm going to tie all of these thoughts together, but let's follow the list. First on the list is Simon, who is called Peter. Who called him Peter? Jesus renamed him Peter. His name was Simon. Simon means one who listens. I can tell that you know Peter, some of you, because you laughed at that. Peter wasn't a listener. Peter was a doer. He was impulsive. He wasn't the kind of guy to, for, to wait for things to happen. He was the kind of guy to make things happen, right? He was the guy who wanted to move. So... He wanted to do something about what he heard Jesus say was going to happen to him in Matthew 16. He said, boys, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me, beat me up, kill me, and I'm going to rise from the dead the third day. Peter goes, oh, no, 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 no. Far be it from you, Lord, that is not, and I underscore not, going to happen. Jesus' simple response was, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking not like God, but like a man. Then I love the story of Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is transfigured. A physical transformation takes place. With Moses and Elijah meeting with Jesus, speaking about things pertaining to the kingdom. And Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, they're they're watching this. They were there with Jesus. They're watching this. And Peter, in seeing this incredible, miraculous occurrence decides, I've got to say something profound. And he he interrupts the conversation. He says, it's good to be here. I just wanted to say that. I think Moses and Elijah went, where'd you get this guy? What is this? That's Peter. He has to say something. He's impulsive. He's the guy in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember who when Jesus was being arrested, pulled out a sword and went after the guy's head. It's good that he was a fisherman, not a swordsman. He missed, got the ear. Jesus healed the ear, said, put your sword away. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And Peter was the one who denied that he even knew Jesus. I love that he's first on the list. Peter, warts and all, first on the list. Marvelous testimony of the grace of God. Jesus chose him. He developed him. He restored him after the resurrection and will use him for his whole life. So Peter's listed. Then Andrew, his brother. The word Andrew means manliness. It's a great name. I bet he loved his name. And I bet he said, Peter... I'm Andrew. (laughs) He's mentioned second, probably because Peter was older. But he's the brother of Peter. 
He was a disciple of John the Baptist. He followed John the Baptist first and then later on followed Jesus. It was Andrew who was reluctant to trust in Jesus Christ. When Jesus was feeding the 5,000, and he was trying to work with the disciples and teach them faith, it was Andrew who said, well, we have a kid with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. But here's the question. But what are they among so many? Well, we know the answer to that question, Andrew. They're not much in and of themselves, but the issue is when you place something little in the hands of Jesus, they become mighty and he will multiply them. But he was the guy reluctant to trust in Jesus, just didn't know how this thing is going to work. That was Andrew. Next on the list are two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They had a fishing business. They were Zebedee's sons. They were sons of Zebedee, they're called. Jesus gave them another title, sons of thunder. Because these two boys were the ones who, in a town of Samaria, asked Jesus for permission for them to call fire down from heaven and nuke a Samaritan village because they didn't receive him. They just sort of were cold and indifferent. They just thought, Jesus, can we just take care of the small stuff and and just nuke this village, call fire down from heaven, just destroy them? Jesus, after rebuking them, gave them the title, and it stuck probably throughout their lifetime, Sons of Thunder. So I picture James and John as these are sort of the... These are the disciples wearing black leather robes. (laughs) A little bit edgier than the rest of the gang. All right. Uh, John, of these disciples... Since they're listed, I thought I'm just going through a little biographical. John had the wonderful distinction, the unique distinction of being called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had that distinction. Of course, he was the one that wrote that about himself, (laughs) which I like even more. Because I think all of us should see ourselves as the disciple that Jesus loved. Who are you? I'm the guy that Jesus loves. Now, Jesus loved John and James and Bartholomew and Peter, but to know that Jesus loves you and to write that of yourself is a wonderful realization. John will write the Gospel of John. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John in the book of Revelation. James, his brother, will become the very first martyr among these 12 apostles, as will be seen in the book of Acts. Next on the list is Philip and Bartholomew, and then Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Philip was slow. And if Andrew was reluctant when Jesus fed the 5,000, then Philip was the slow one. He, He had a calculator for a brain. He wasn't one to trust in the Lord. He was the accountant among the bunch. He was the guy who said, Ah, I've run the numbers. This isn't going to work. We, we just don't have the budget for this. So when Jesus had this, the crowd that he's about to feed, he asked the question, Where will we buy bread that we may feed this crowd? It was Philip who started thinking about that. Okay, I'm, I'm looking at the crowd. 100, 1,000, 
five. And he put it all together and he go, okay, 200 denarii worth of bread, which is eight months of a working man's wage. If we had that much money, eight months of a man's salary, we couldn't feed this crowd. He has to calculate it. Now, the right answer to the question, where are we going to find enough bread to feed this crowd? The right answer is, I don't know, you're Jesus. You got it covered. We trust you. You got us into this mess. I trust that you'll get us out of this mess. Can't wait to watch what you're going to do. But no, he's calculating it and trying to figure it out. He goes, I figured it out. Won't work. Can't do it. That's Philip. Next is mentioned Bartholomew. Another name for Bartholomew you'll recognize, Nathaniel. Nathaniel is the guy that Philip comes to in John chapter 1 and says, we found the ones that Moses and the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth. It was Nathaniel or Bartholomew who said, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, I used to get myself in trouble when I first moved to New Mexico and I would name different towns that I thought were regarded as small towns and I said, you know, Nazareth is sort of like this town or that town and I stopped mentioning them. Thomas is next on the list. Thomas was the skeptic. He's axiomatic for disbelief. If we want to say somebody is uh, um, filled with disbelief, we say that person is a doubting Thomas. That name comes down because of the kind of... He was the man from Missouri, the disciple from Missouri, the show-me state. I don't believe it till you show me. I want to see his hands. You show me his hands and his feet, I'll believe. Until then, I won't believe. Show me. That was the license plate on his chariot. (laughs) Thomas was the guy who in John 11 said, Our friend Lazarus is sleeping. I'm going to go wake him up. Let's go to Judea. And somebody's, one of the disciples said, Wait a minute, Judea, they, they want to kill you in Judea. And Jesus says, we've got to go. It's daytime. The night's coming. We've got to work. Thomas says, let's go to Judea that we may die with him. (laughs) He always saw the dark side of things. But I will say this for Thomas, because he does get a bad rap. He was loyal. Let's go with him. If we die, we die. We're going to die. He's he's a negative personality. We're going to die. But let's go. If he's going to die, let's die with him. That's loyalty. That part of him I admire. And Matthew. Now, Matthew is the author of this book. He's the converted IRS agent. The tax collector is now on the list of apostles. Then James, the son of Alphaeus, also known as James the Less. Why is he called James the Less? Because he's the younger in the list of the 12 apostles. He's younger than James the Greater, James the brother of John. Don't know much about him. I just know that his dad was Alphaeus. And Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, he also goes by another name, Judas, the son of James. Verse 4, Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Simon is also called Simon the Zealot. Does that ring a bell? Do you know what a zealot is? A zealot was a political party. It was a religious political party. It was a... See if you can... Some of you will be able to relate to this. It's 
a religious group who believed that they should change their culture by their involvement in the political realm. Radically so. They believed because they were under foreign occupation and it wasn't God's will, God's original will for our nation was a theocracy and now Rome has taken over. They were sworn assassins. They were freedom fighters to kill Roman officers whenever they had a chance. What I find interesting is that Jesus puts on the same team a tax collector and a zealot. That's like putting an Israeli freedom fighter and a member of the PLO on the same team. Matthew would have been a target for murder in the natural realm. I love how the body of Christ works, how Jesus takes us from different backgrounds with different giftings and different callings and different dispositions and personalities. And he says, now I've made you my church. Get along. Put your differences aside. Love one another. Get past the personality and get past the politics and love one another for my sake. And then finally, Judas Iscariot. Iscariot means a man from Kiriath, which was a village in Judea. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go the way of the Gentiles, do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, we are now entering into the second major discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. The first major discourse was called the Sermon on the Mount. This is the second one. This is the sermon about the mission. And... Here's the change. Up till now, who's been doing all the work? Jesus. Healing, speaking, preaching, everything. Now, He's going to use them. He's going to gift them. He's going to send them. He's just given them power, it says, to work miracles. And these twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, and that word saying begins, begins the beginning of this second major discourse on the mission. Do not go the way of the Gentiles, etc., Okay, so Jesus, the rest of this chapter, is going to give a sermon. Let me give you the outline. Verses 5 through 15 is the call of the mission. Here's the calling I'm giving you. The second point Jesus makes are the consequences of the mission. Beginning in verse 16 down to verse 23, and then finally verse 24 to verse 42 is the courage needed for the mission. So those are the major points. Jesus, he's he's giving them a sermon. It's a sermon about the mission, their mission. Here's your call. Here are the consequences to your call. And here's the courage you need to fulfill it. So, tie together what you just read in chapter 9 in your mind with what you're reading here. Jesus saw the multitude. He sees the need, the condition. And he basically says, there's so many people, and there's so much need. And here's the third part. And so I'll send you. So many people, so much need, and so I'll send you. That's what we read in verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out. Now what did he tell them to do in the previous chapter? 
look, look at the harvest field. Therefore, pray. So there they were. Lord, we pray for the harvest field that you would send out workers even as our master Jesus just told us. We pray that you do that. Amen. They thought it's all over. Now Jesus says, boys, good news. Your prayer's been answered. (laughs) Through you. You're going. And he sends them out. He's commissioning them and he's preparing them now through this message that he's going to give them. There is a solution to the present need today in our world. Do you agree that there's a big need in our world? Would you agree that people need Jesus? How many of you actually believe people out there need Jesus? I want to see a show of hands. Okay, that's that's most of us. What's the solution to the condition? Now listen carefully. These are all here. Number one, look at it. Look at, look at the need. Look at people. Learn to look at people differently than you've been looking at people. When Jesus looked at people, he didn't see a crowd. He saw the need of the heart. You can't look at people just as clients anymore. You can't look at people as your boss or the person that works for you or business people or people in front of you on the freeway. You can't look at people anymore. You have to look at people as souls without Christ. You have to look differently and look at the people of this world like Jesus looks at them. So that's, that's the first step in solving the problem and meeting the need to the condition. Look at it. Number two, pray for it. Jesus said, look at the harvest field, therefore pray to the Father. He didn't say, therefore, get up and go. He said, the second step after you notice them and your heart is moved because of them is to pray for them. You can always do more than pray after you've prayed. You can never do more than pray until you've prayed. That's where God begins to move in you and shows you your gifting and your part in meeting the need. So you pray. I feel that Much of Christian service has neglected this important second step. A stirring message is given about the need and we need you to get involved. And so people get involved without praying and saying, God, is this how you want me to get involved? What is my part in in the involvement? They just go out and do instead of sitting down to think and pray and find out what the Lord's direction is. That's a mistake. Now, granted... Jesus will give later on the Great Commission and He will say, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's a sizable commission. But in Acts chapter 1, He tells His disciples after He rose from the dead, he is a, before He ascended into heaven, He said, but wait in Jerusalem until you be filled with power from on high. For John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Go, he said, but first wait. Don't go yet. Go, but before you go, make sure that you are equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's where the pray for it comes in. Look at it. Pray for it. Third step, go for it. Look at it. Pray for it. Go for it. There comes a point in verse 5 where Jesus sent them out. 
See, here's the interesting catch. If you are a person who prays for the needs of of people around you and you pray for the world, if you go into our prayer chapel and you're one of those dear prayer warriors who actually takes time out of your life to look at that map and pray for people groups and pray for different ones, what you'll discover is that while you're praying, the Lord works deeply inside of your own life, your own soul. And He moves you with a compassion toward those people where eventually you can't just pray any longer. You have to pray and go for it. Get involved somehow. Now that doesn't mean you're going to go overseas. Or it might mean that you will go overseas. But I don't know that it will. But I do know this. Though you may never go overseas with your feet, you can and should go overseas with your knees. You should go out into your community and your next-door neighborhood with your knees. You should pray. You look at it, you pray for it, and then you go for it. And so he's sending them out. And he gives them a mission in verse 5. Do not go the way of the Gentiles. Don't go so far up north. Don't go enter the city of the Samaritans. Don't go too far south where Samaria is. He's now focusing their attention on a single people group their people group, the Jewish people group that live around the area of the Decapolis and the Scythopolis and the Galilee, that region. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach. You can't just go. you got to preach. The word preach, keruso, means to herald, to speak out. Now, I remember reading and hearing something uh, some years ago, and I hear it every now and then because people like to write this stuff because it makes them sound really chic and cool and spiritual, I believe. The saying is, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Well, that sounds clever. And that people are going to go, ooh, wow, that's deep. It is deep. But it's wrong. It's always necessary to use words. As you go... Don't just do good deeds. Don't just heal the sick and go, I preached the gospel. I fed you a meal. I did a nice deed. And I I hope you're going to put two and two together and figure out that that I'm a Christian and that this is God and that Jesus came from heaven, died on the cross and rose from the dead. And I just hope you just figure that out. If necessary, I'll use words. It is necessary. Use words. As you go, proclaim, be a herald, speak, preach it out. Be a representative of the king. Tell them why you're giving them a cup of cold water and healing their body and doing the wonderful philanthropic works that you're doing. As you go, preach. Saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, understand the mission. Later on, he's going to give them the great commission. This is the smaller commission. And this is targeted on a single people group, the Jewish nation, the people living in that area, announced to them that a Jewish Messiah has come, according to Jewish scripture, to fulfill all the predictions of the kingdom of God as predicted in the prophets. It's come to you. And if they require proof, show them proof. Do these miracles that I've enabled you to do to show them the kingdom that I'm talking about. 
Heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your money, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. He says, go out, travel light. No backpack, no extra money, no extra shoes. Let's see, should I wear the brown sandals or the black sandals? Well, I'm wearing the brown sash. Maybe I should do the... It just, just go simply. Just go. And the Lord will provide. He's teaching them dependence. It's not going to always stay this way. Don't take this and say, well, that's how a missionary is to go out. Because then we would just say to a missionary, see ya. Go out, take nothing with you, not even a suitcase. Get on the plane, just your ticket. (laughs) But this isn't always going to be. It's temporary. I'm going to read something to you now in Luke chapter 22 that gives balance to this. This is chapter 22 of Luke, verse 35. He said to them, when I sent you out without money bag, knapsack and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said nothing. Then he said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him take, sell his garment, and buy one. So take provisions, take protection, and go for it. Different kind of commission. He's training them here in the 10th chapter to live a life of faith and to travel light. Now, whatever city or town you enter, verse 11, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. And when you go out into uh, when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace, your shalom, as the Jews would call it, come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. The practice of shaking the dust off of one's feet was a rabbinical practice. The rabbis, when they would travel to a Gentile land and re-enter the land of Israel, they would do this. They'd shake the dust off their feet publicly so as to say every particle of dust from this heathen area were leaving off of our bodies because they believed that even the Gentile dust would defile them. They were making the kind of a statement that there is a separation between non-believers, non-Jewish people at that time, and Jewish people. The idea of shaking the dust off was to disassociate yourself from the paganism of that place. That's what it is. I'm now entering into the covenant land. I shake the dust off the, off my feet from, from that place. I'm disassociating myself with paganism, with idolatry. I'm making a clean break. And shaking of the dust off of your feet is a pronouncement, a proclamation of judgment against that place. Especially... These ambassadors for the king, these apostles who are being sent out, they're representing Jesus the king. If they don't receive them, it's because they don't receive the message of Jesus the king. And if they don't receive the message of Jesus the king, they're not receiving Jesus. And Jesus said, if they don't receive me, they don't receive my father. So to shake the dust off your feet was a proclamation of judgment as well as a cutting off a dissociation. 
Do we have anyone in the New Testament who actually did this? You're staring at me like, well, answer. (laughs) Yes, we do. Uh, Paul and Barnabas did. When they went to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, they went into a town called Antioch of Pisidia. They went into a synagogue, they preached Christ, and they... Paul gave a beautiful sermon. The ruler of the synagogue saw these visitors, and after the reading of the Scripture, he said to Paul and Barnabas, If you have any word of exhortation, come on up, man. Say on. So Paul took it and spoke about the prophets and the promises of the Messiah in the Old Covenant, spoke about Jesus, and um, talked about God's plan to forgive, that you can be justified from the things even the law of Moses couldn't justify you from. Well, the Gentiles in the synagogue, there were non-Jewish believers who were close, and they were in the back of the synagogue. They were listening to the sermon. They got all excited, and they said to Paul, Hey, can you come next week and do that again? That was so exciting. It was the best sermon I ever heard. So the very next Sabbath, Paul and Barnabas were in the synagogue again, and there were so many people, it said the whole town showed up, which made the rulers of the synagogue jealous, and they tried to stir up the people, and created division and called down curses from God, blasphemies on Paul and Barnabas. So they had to leave town. Before they left, Antioch of Pisidia and went over to Iconium. It says they shook the dust off their feet as a testimony against them. So just as Jesus said, they did. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now I'd be going, thanks a lot. That's not a comforting position. A a sheep doesn't stand a chance against a wolf, a wolf being a synonym typically in the scripture for a false prophet. But you get the idea. You're going into hostile territory as a disciple, as a follower, as a sent out apostle of Jesus. They're not going to sympathize with you. When you go out into this world and you say, I love Jesus, I'm going to tell you his message, don't you realize you have a bullseye, a target painted on you? The enemy will do everything he can to get you to stop from being that. So Jesus is honest. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. We're coming now to the second point in his sermon. The first one was the call to the mission. Here's the consequence of the mission, persecution. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father who speaks in you. This is not a license for a lazy preacher to not study for a message. The context is in a time of persecution. When your life is on the line because of your witness, God at that time will gloriously give you the right words to say at that time. Now brother will deliver up brother to death and a father his child and Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. 
Don't let that throw you. It doesn't mean that your spiritual salvation is contingent upon your um, faithful, you know, your perfect witness in a time of persecution. If you take this verse and you compare what we read about in the book of Revelation, how after the three and a half years of hell on earth and God pouring out His wrath on earth and the wrath of the Antichrist, that eventually the salvation will come. Salvation meaning not spiritual salvation, but physical deliverance will come in the nick of time for those during that time. That will come to pass. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and that a servant be like his master. If they've called the master of the house, Bilzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Bilzebub is a Philistine deity, a.k.a. a name for Satan. And so if they've called, if, and they attribute the works of Jesus to demonic influences or Beelzebub or Satan. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be made known. The gospel will become public knowledge. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, are you of more value? You are of more value than many sparrows. Just think about that truth, and probably here we should close. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Even what you might consider the most trivial and insignificant aspects of life God's in control of. Even down to the bird that hit your window last week and died in the backyard. God saw it. God knew about it. He's in sovereign, providential control. Nothing escapes even the hairs on your head. The very hairs of your head are numbered. God counts the hairs on your head. For some, it's an easier task than for others. But He knows every head. Now, the average head has between 90,000 to 140,000 strands of hair or follicular units. If you're a red head, it's about 90,000. If you're a blonde, typically you're a bit higher, around 120 to 144, or 144,000. 140,000. Wow, 12,000. That's all tribes on my head. (laughs) But the point Jesus is making is wonderful. Every little aspect of your life is monitored and in control by sovereign God. You're His child. And again, like we said the other day, God never says the word oops. Not in His vocabulary. 
Even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. We'll pick it up next time. Lord, the joy about going from chapter to chapter, verse by verse, is that we will always pick up where we left off. We believe, Lord, that you've allowed us to cover exactly what we need to hear. But the overarching truth that we have heard tonight is that not only are we disciples, but we are also apostles. Not only are we those who hear and watch and process information as learners or disciples, but we're on a mission from God. And each of us, all of us, are told to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And not to conform to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we might prove what is that perfect and acceptable will of God for our lives. And so tonight as we close, Lord, we close appropriately. We we say, here we are. Here's our bodies. May our bodies be headquarters. May our lives be the place where you reside and the base of operations from which you reach a very needy world. Many people, much need, and so I send you. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. We simply ask that you'd show us the task and give us what we need to glorify you in it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.